0: We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we work and learn, and pay respect to the First Nations peoples and their elders past, present, and future. We're recording on Gadigal land. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land.
1: Welcome back to episode 3 of Rewind's Look Back to 1990 and the release of one of Australia's finest and most important albums, the debut Charcoal Lane by the great Archie Roach. I'm Steve Bell. These docu-series podcasts are always best experienced in their entirety and in order, so if you haven't checked out episodes 1 and 2, it's best if you give those a listen before diving in here.
2: She comes here every day This little lady with hair of grey And she just smiles and shuffles On her way Through these hospital corridors She walks along these lonely floors To a bed Where an old man used to lay And an old man used to say I'm in the summer of my life I've seen the good times, I've seen the strife I've just been under the surgeon's knife Please don't cry We learned how
1: throughout these trials and tribulations, music had been a constant for Archie, an escape, a comfort, a way of bringing people together. And when he'd finally come out of the other side of his battle, sober and renewed, all of the things he'd experienced, good and bad, came pouring out in his songs, beautiful and expressive art, flowering from this lifetime of trauma and marginalisation. In the first two episodes, we traced Archie Roach's career path, starting with his childhood, exploring the tragedy of him becoming part of the lost and disenfranchised stolen generations when he was torn from the arms of his loving family at the age of two and thrown into the foster system by seemingly heartless government bureaucrats, and how, after his eventual quest for identity and culture and country became a downward spiral of drinking and displacement, he was saved by both his own strength and the love of his late partner Ruby Hunter. And once these songs started seeping out into the public domain and flooring everyone with both their message and eloquence, it was only a matter of time until Archie was ushered into the spotlight, but this was fast-tracked by Oz Rock heroes Paul Kelly and Steve Connolly, whose faith and belief in Archie was so strong that they took it upon themselves to make this dream a reality. They introduced themselves into Archie's world, then introduced Archie to their crowd, after which they set their eyes on a bigger prize making these songs into an album, a calling card to help introduce Archie and his music to the rest of the country and beyond. We've heard how they earned Archie's trust and friendship swapping country songs around his family kitchen table, established there was material enough for a record, and, with a nudge from Ruby, convinced Archie that this was a worthwhile challenge and one he was more than equipped to take on. The next phase, or as Paul alluded to last episode, most likely a concurrent one, was convincing Paul and Steve's label Mushroom Records to take a chance on the basically unknown singer-songwriter. But with their unbridled enthusiasm for the project, no doubt helped by the fact that at this stage in early 1990, Paul Kelly and The Messengers were one of the biggest acts in Australia, it wasn't too hard of a sell. Before we dive into the ensuing relationship between Archie and Mushroom, one that stretches unbroken to the present day, one of my favourite parts of this whole incredible Chuck Lane story takes place right at the beginning of that union. Paul and Steve have convinced Mushroom to take a punt on Archie and the label has agreed, at which point it's contract time. Archie didn't have a manager yet. He'd been plucked essentially from nowhere. His career hadn't even really started. So he asked the person he trusted most with these things and someone who knew these people in this world to come with him to meet the label just to keep an eye on proceedings. Paul, here's Archie recounting how it went down.
3: Yeah, yeah we went in there, they they they, you know, they, they, said, okay, you're going to do an album with us. They presented me with this contract and was reading through it. And I'm looking at it, reading through it, and it was all gobbledygook to me. Yeah, but uh, I was like, all right, yeah, it seems okay. And I, I was going to sign it. And Paul said, oh, can I have a look at this? I said, oh, okay, But And Paul browsed and chewed it, browsed and chewed it. It took a little while. I was getting back at the lawyer and says, oh, I think we can do a little bit better than this. Yeah. And, uh, I didn't know what he was talking about, but uh, I said, oh, well, okay then. And the lad looked at me and said, what do you think, uh, Margie? I said, look, I'm, I don't know nothing about about contracts and whatnot, but Paul, I think knows a little bit, a little bit more than me, so I'll, I'll go with Paul. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, they came up with something that that, uh, that was a, a little better. Or oh, Paul, Paul thought, well, this this is this is yeah, this is much better, or well, a little better anyway.
1: Yeah. It's nice to have someone like that fighting in your corner.
3: Well, it was not. It was, you know, like I said, I hadn't had a manager and hadn't even thought about management back then, because that was a, that's a that was a whole other ball game, that that's for sure.
1: There's just something awesome about that image to me of Paul standing by his mate and telling his own label, the people backing his career who'd been involved in all of his albums so far, that they could do better, and instructing Archie not to sign the initial contract. Paul, as is his wont, plays down his role in proceedings.
3: Well, they just, they, they just presented a standard contract at the time and,
1: uh,
4: and uh, Archie and Ruby were like ready to sign on the spot. So don't sign on the spot. Let's take this away and just get it looked over by a lawyer. So it was just, just due diligence. Just um, We didn't knock back the contract. We said, hang on, we, you don't have to sign right
3: here. We'll take it away and we'll get a lawyer to look at it. So that's what we did and, you know, changed this and that. But it was a pretty standard first contract, first record contract. But but then, so that's what happened.
1: Gerard Shalaki, who, as we've heard, is currently tour director for Frontier Touring, but back then was Paul Kelly and soon Archie Roach's booking agent for Premier Artists, Frontier and Premier both existing as the touring arms of the Mushroom Group, is not surprised at all by Paul's allegiance to Archie, his friend and fellow artist.
0: That's exactly right, but you know, um, uh, it can be fraught, you know, the record business, and and to have somebody with you. I mean, Archie and Paul were friends, and that's what friends do—they look out for their mates. And you know, hey, come along with me and check it out. What do you think? And and to get to see Paul's opinion that he knows and trusts, and then for Paul to have that reaction is a, is a beautiful thing. And you know, and and I think the record label were probably expecting it to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's, great, there's, there's also a great scene um, sort of on a comparable level in uh, in the Tom Petty do- documentary that Peter Bogdanovich made where there's a, a scene in the studio with Roger McGuinn and uh, Tom Petty's in there in the studio with Roger and uh, a record label guy's there. And and and, and the record label is uh, said something to Roger and Tom just stands up and completely berates him and says how, you know, this is Roger McGuinn, how dare you speak to this person like this? You know, you don't know what you've got and totally puts the guy back in in his box and, you know, and that's that's artists looking after artists and standing up for them and, uh, you know, Paul and, uh, Paul and Archie, there you go.
1: And in terms of Paul bringing in another artist to the label and going into Bat for him like that, Gerard reckons that such altruism is completely par for the course.
0: Paul Kelly is one of those artists that, He's an explorer, he's always on the lookout, he's always listening out for new artists, including artists on all the bills when he tours. He pays real good attention to who's on stage with him, and uh, he always has a say in it. And, you know, he'll give a break to, you know, all these wonderful young performers, whether it be Alice Skye, whether it be Emma Donovan, who's appearing on the upcoming Making Gravy shows. And then he has them up on stage with him as well performing. He's so inclusive with all of that stuff. So it comes as no surprise whatsoever. It's just how Paul rolls.
1: Now, obviously, and sadly in the circumstances, No discussion of Mushroom Records or the Mushroom family can be had without talking about Michael Gadinsky, Mushroom's founder and spiritual figurehead from its formation in 1972 right through until his tragic passing earlier this year, 2021. We've mentioned in this podcast already the huge holes left in the Australian music scene by the sad passing of Ruby Hunter and Steve Connolly and such voids don't come any bigger than that left by Michael. He was a giant of the Australian music scene, loved by all of his artists, loved by all he worked with and plenty of others who came into his orbit, respected by everyone else, and a massive supporter of Archie Roach ever since Paul brought him into the fold all those years ago. In 2020, to celebrate Charcoal Lane's 30th anniversary and unable to tour because of COVID, Archie recorded a series of Zoom interviews with key players in the album's story And one of those was with Michael. They're all up on Archie's YouTube channel, and Archie's kindly given us permission to use this short section of the chat with Michael discussing the beginning of this long and fruitful relationship.
5: I've been fortunate enough to be uh, part of the journey um, throughout, to be honest with you, that's obviously as the head of the Mushroom Group. um, It goes way back to, I think, um, Gerard, who was a agent at Premier at the time, yeah. was very, very keen and supportive and was for many years and still is of you. And um, you um, were on a show with Paul Kelly. And I've listened to a couple of your chats that you've been doing. And I found it uh, quite amazing that you didn't know who Paul Kelly was, but you certainly knew who his songs were. And yeah. Paul Kelly was a major influence in um, a number of artists, but particularly you and Steve Conley, who passed away very, very young, we had the greatest respect for. He was as involved in that album as Paul with yourself. And um, I remember the genuine excitement when... Uh, Simon B, um, Eleanor, a number of people that um, were, when that album came in, it was a very uh, emotional album for you, obviously. It was, as it turns out, it's a historic album that's relevance is more than ever, as i um, heard uh, today on Radio National. They played um, Down City Streets, which yeah. was written by your late and great wife, I believe. That's right. Um, um, and um, it's been a, a, a long journey, a, a journey of people around me that have uh, really, really loved being part of it um Pierre baroni I remember yeah. the, uh, he'd been in our art department for a few months and he did that amazing cover which to this day you know we miss it it's great that vinyl's back in action because you can touch it and yeah, feel it exactly so Aurora records was one of um, our labels and um it's it's been a And there's still a a bit to come, but it's been an amazing journey for yourself on every level Um, health-wise. Everything we've felt with you, with Ruby, you've had two amazing women, apart from um, your late wife around you, being both your managers, that Jill Shelton, if she was here, she knows it. I only haven't shaved because of lockdown in Melbourne, but I will give Jill the big the biggest hard mate, she's an absolute partner of yours for forever. Anyway, so um, yeah. I do remember a lot about it and, boy, it's come a long way.
3: Yeah, yeah, look, um, I I remember the early days, um, you know, at uh, uh, um, Albert Park there, well, you know, going up to uh, and talking to Simon B and Eleanor back in the day and, um, and uh, getting up and meet you the first time. Well, I did I hadn't I hadn't met you. But I'd heard about you, but had, <laughs> hadn't really met you until uh, until the ARIA's when when Charlie uh, uh, got that Ari Award for for best uh, Indigenous album and um, and also best new talent. So and I met. I you pretty, home,
5: uh, <laughs> I was pretty yeah. emotional that night for you, mate. It was. Um I had dropped into a meeting or two in um, our famous boardroom down the stairs. and yeah, yeah, yeah. I loved the thing you wrote in the book, which is so true about me. Um, you loved the passion. You couldn't understand half of what I said. So I'm, um, I've always had a pretty husky voice, but it's, um, it really, um, I know how much it meant to you and how much it meant to the community, but what it meant to the people around you, um, not just the people that were fans of that record, but people in the office, there were so many fans of, of the album, and they were just, you know, so pleased. And um, it really I would have imagined it would have meant so much to you to see that um be, you know, the whole thing become a reality that most probably was a dream, to be honest, I think. And it's a, it's great when great dreams come true and this yeah, dream, yeah. Yeah. This dream's continuing, mate. And we'll both be there to uh, either of us drop, I can promise you.
1: <laughs> that sadly came true far too quickly, but the mutual respect there is abundantly obvious. Now, during that clip, when Michael and Archie were discussing Archie's key supporters in his early time at Mushroom, they both name-checked Eleanor, and they were talking about Eleanor McKay. These days, she's the editor of a regional newspaper, but she was a long-term part of the Mushroom family, rising to the role of general manager of the Mushroom labels. But back when Charcoal Lane came out, as she explains, she'd just taken a new role as national promotions manager for alternative music.
4: I actually I started working with Archie as soon as they signed him. So, what was that, 1990, I think? Um, so, without boring you, but in 1990, at the start of 1990, I moved to Melbourne to work at Mushroom, the Mushroom office in Melbourne. Prior to that, I'd been in Sydney, so I did all the um, publicity for Charcoal Lane. So I was yeah. So I, I started there when I moved to Mushroom Melbourne. They started me as sort of like alternative. I was called the. Alternative Promotions Manager, that was me, National Promotions Manager for Alternative Music or something. I don't know, some crazy title. Anyway, so I worked on art like right from the start, I worked for Archie, and then I went on to, you know, become General Manager of White, so then I worked, yeah, so I worked on, like, the first four albums in one form or another. Um, but because I was in Sydney, I think when Archie first got signed, I, you know, I was actually... He was already signed by the time I came along. That's a very long and involved way of saying that. (laughs) Um, And Paul brought him to the label, basically. Yeah. Paul and Steve Conley came in saying, this guy's incredible. We want to, you know, you should sign him. We want to do a record with him. I mean, when you've got someone like Paul on the label, um, when he comes to you, with an artist, he, he doesn't do it lightly, you know, like he comes with things that he feels are really important. And so, you know, it, it carries a lot of weight, you know. So when Paul arrives in saying this is something that I think you should listen to, everybody actually kind of downs tools and really does listen. And then he just, you know, Archie's voice was so incredible. And like I said, he was already signed by the time I came on board, but I remember going to see him and he supported Paul. And it was just stunning. You know, when somebody, you, you know, um, he came out and he sang, took the children away and the whole crowd just went quiet, you know, and people just genuinely were completely gobsmacked. And, you know, um, that kind of thing, you get the hair goes up on the back of your neck. And so I, I think I think everybody had that reaction to him, you know, and you don't get that that often. you know you, you know, there's always that you get that sort of hip young band, and it's all exciting. But Archie was something different, and I don't you know, I don't think it was that hard to spot it, <laughs> you know, um. And the really nice thing about Mushroom, you know, because we ended up with this, you know, quite a, you know, we had Yothi Yindi, we had Archie, you know, with Archie came Ruby, obviously, um, and Christine Anu. And they were just all incredibly talented, amazing musicians. And I don't even, it's actually only in retrospect that I look back at it and go, it's actually pretty amazing that Mushroom signed all of those artists, because when you look at what was happening Around us, those kind of artists weren't getting signed. But at the time, they just seemed like incredible artists. And that's why they were signed, not necessarily because they were Indigenous or, I don't know, maybe I'm just naive. But it, certainly never in my time at Mushroom was there, you know, talk about we have to sign a certain sort of artist. You, or we have to support indigenous music, or you know, it was just if people believed that the artist was really good, then then that was the thing with Michael. You know, like he said, he would say, you know, like I pay, you know, I hired you because you're good at what you do. Now go out and do it. He didn't really want to second guess all your. Um, you know, your choices. And that doesn't mean to say he didn't give you a bollocking if your choice was wrong, but he backed people, you know, if, if he hired people. And I, I think probably it was Simon Bayek who was the main person with Archie because Paul would have brought it to Simon. Then um, Michael would have just backed Simon because Simon believed the record was good.
1: That belief in backing was imperative, Because Charcoal Lane didn't ship millions of units straight off the bat. It was never going to. A lot of labels talk about nurturing the axe they sign and being in it for the long haul. But when push comes to shove, commerce usually prevails over art. But Eleanor explains that Mushroom really did tend to stick with their artists, especially through the early years.
4: I mean, Michael's, you know, loyal to a fault. You know, so he he would stick with artists in a way that, you know, other record companies wouldn't, you know, and um, I mean, a, even before I worked at Mushroom, that was probably one of the things that I really, you know, I, I'd come from a very indie background and so, you know, major record companies were scary to me. But one of the things I noticed about Mushroom was that they stuck with their artists. So they had this, especially, you know, in the 80s, they had this whole raft of them. So there was Paul himself. You know, so Paul was was album number four before they really had a hit. So he did the two albums with the dots and then posted. Um, the the Models were another one who really, you know, I mean, they didn't kind of even deliver a sort of critical hit until three or so albums in, and then they had the massive hit with, you know, Out of Mind, Out of Sight. Um, Hunters, you know, so there was there was really a there was a history of that with Mushroom where, you know, like if Michael, like I said, if Michael liked, if he liked it or someone that Michael trusted liked them, then he would hang in there with an artist. Um, So, and also, you know, Mushroom didn't really have a whole lot of hits. You know, it was really only when Kylie came along that there were, you know, there was sort of big money hits. So, you know, the the bands were all about, you know, what, getting out and playing live. And, you know, and if they could perform live, then, I mean, I think that was one of the first things we did with Archie. We put him, put him out on the road. It was such a strange combination with Frente and this other little band called Hellvelen, And they just went and Mick Newton, I don't know, if you've spoken to Mick, he'd be worth having a word to, who runs um, Day on the Green. So Mick was the agent in a premier artist and Mick put together these little shows and they were either called turn off your telly or turn on your radio, but they went to just all of these little regional venues and they just played all over the country. Um, and all three artists were on white records. And so, um yeah, so we basically we were kind of figuring that we weren't going to get commercial radio. It was actually just about getting them in front of people. And so, you know, we, Archie would go and play all these amazing sort of things with Paul. And I think, yeah, Gerard would have been plugging him onto every international tour that he could because once you saw him, you know, then, then he had a kind of fan for life. And then, you know, on the other side of it, we were just putting him out in front of sort of every little indie indie crowd that you could get. Um, and White Records, we didn't really have the hits. I used to say to Michael that we were good for his credibility, not for his bank balance.
1: Charcoal Lane would eventually come out on Aurora, a small sub-label of mushroom that was formed for the project and existed for a few years in the 90s, putting out records by Archie, Chris Wilson, Chris Bailey of the Saints, Neil Murray and a couple of other acts. According to Eleanor, this being simply a measure to keep those artists separate from the pop acts on the roster.
4: I think initially um what became White Records didn't exist at that point. So there was this idea that that we wanted that they wanted to create a, a sub label. Off Mushroom, that would sort of deal more with heritage stuff, or, you know, because Mushroom at that point, if you look at what was, you know, having the hitch, you've got the Shantuzis and and Kylie and, um, you know, like Jimmy, bless him, and all of that. But there was a whole lot of artists who sort of didn't fit in there. And what had been white label records, which is where Hunters had started and everything, that had kind of just, Dissipated. And so Simon B came up with this idea that he wanted to um, relaunch the white label and that became White Records. But I think before that even got up and running, um, they, they all had, they'd already signed Archie and they needed to, you know, create a spot for him that wasn't, you know, wasn't next to the Chantousins or... And that's where um that's where the Aurora thing came from. And so I think Simon B and Pierre Baroni worked on that a lot. Um because yeah, like I said, initially I was like, you know, I worked on that record as an alternative promotions manager. And then I remember Simon coming to me and saying, you know, I want to start white records and we'll you know, we'll kind of operate completely separately to the main mushroom thing, would you come and work with me? But I think Archie was already out before we did that. So I, th- I think it was, in lots of ways, it was sort of a marketing thing, um, but it was probably the beginning of Simon B really trying to, you know, kind of set up an alternative section of mushroom. And, you know, Michael was like at the same time all of this stuff was exploding you know where you know like nirvana was exploding and um you know and even with my role because you know i had been the promotions manager in new south wales and for a whole lot of reasons i was kind of at the end of my tether there and so they moved me down to melbourne and what they'd realized was because i was you know from this indie background was that I didn't like any of Mushroom's big hits, you know. <laughs> I was like the inverse barometer. So when I go, <laughs> I really hate that song, they go, yes, it's going to be a hit. Um, and so they were already looking at this idea that, you know, there was a whole lot of stuff that was coming through that, um, you know, that didn't fit into radio, that was really only, you know, working through um, public radio. Um, but, but it was sort of very rock. So, you know, like I think like, we were importing the Faith No More record and things like that. And, you know, that's not where Archie sat. So you kind of had to find another spot for him. So I think that was the mindset behind it.
1: It's important to note that chaco Lane went gold. That's incredible and a lot of records. But it was a gradual process. It didn't happen overnight. Gerard agrees that while Mushroom existed as a business should to make a profit, not every single decision or signing was necessarily dictated by financial
0: concerns. The way Michael ran Mushroom, um, he... <sighs> that record label wasn't govern with their signings as far as what's going to make money and therefore do we sign it if it's not going to make money well we're not going to sign it that, that's the complete antithesis of how that label ran or and is run by the way uh, it's still the same this, these days seeing something like archie roach an artist like archie roach was something that he, it was tailor-made for what michael wanted on that label which is to give a voice to wonderful artists like that, and, to, and 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 to look after them as well, it was never about okay, well, your deal's done, see you later. It was always about great. Let's just keep going. Let's just keep going. Like a real, he really sponsored a lot of these people in a way, and 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 it was always about we know it's a great record, and we know you're a great artist, and we're so proud to have you in our company, and and for us working with you, and and that's what makes a great record label. It's about long-term thinking, it's about the artist, it's always about the artist.
1: We'll discuss in the following episodes the sociological and political importance of land, a relevance which has only grown with the passing of time, but Eleanor remembers that everyone working closely with Archie at Mushroom was pretty much aware of this from the get-go.
4: It actually won a Human Rights Award, took the children away, and it won that really early, like it was probably 91, 92. Um, and I mean, I think it, it's a bit like you know Yothu Yindi with Treaty. Like when that record came along, and when they, especially when they did that remix, you know, you kind of knew something was going on. Like even if you couldn't quite put your finger on it, you know. And I mean, that's the thing with if you, you mean you've worked around music all your life, you can do the same things for a whole batch of records but one of them just just goes, you know, and you can, you know, it's the old, you know, you can feel it in your bones when it's about to happen and you you often don't know why. And I, you know, I was actually just saying it to someone else about another project just last week. I said, you know, you nothing sells itself. I've worked with too many great artists to, you know, and seen them not sell to know that being good is not enough to make you successful commercially. So you have to do all of this stuff. You have to keep, you know, pumping it out and spreading the message and, and build enough momentum. And then when it goes, just get out of the way and, you know, let it do its thing. So I think we knew with Archie that it was a really significant record. And, um, and you know, he was telling a story that people weren't very aware of, but we'd already seen with Paul you know, how a song like that, you know, like like From Little Things, Big Things Grow or Maralinga, that, you know, there was a whole Australian history bound up in in songs and Archie came along and, you know, added this incredible song. And, um, you know, it was a very palatable way to tell people about a really unpalatable story. And on top of that, you know, Archie himself was very generous in the way he spoke about it the way he talked about it you know he he's very very zen about things um say, you know Ruby was much more vocal much more angry about what had happened Archie was very forgiving and sort of very forward forward looking about it he just wanted Things to be better in the future. He didn't really. And I think, you know, if that made a really big impact as well, you know, his actual general demeanor was pretty significant. I don't know.
1: Um, I agree 100%. Like, he, especially on Chuck lane he's not trying to shove, shove anything down your throat or, or change anything. Right. He's just saying, this is my story, this is what happened. And it invites empathy, and through that, it's when you get attached to the story you know like, yeah yeah that's really special
4: yeah and there were you know there were things going on around it like i remember going to see him play at a you know a concert that they did for Nelson Mandela when he came out and you know it was you know archie performing nelson mandela speaking and ruben hurricane carter you know talking you know like it was astounding you know so and I think there was, had been a private reception, but I went to like the big thing and it was, you know, it was early in my times at Melbourne, so my, <laughs> my geographical senses weren't so good. But, you know, it was a stadium. We were outside like you know, at, a, at a Docklands kind of thing, you know, like it was big. We weren't in some little hall somewhere and there were just thousands of people there. And, you know, Nelson Mandela, it was like a rock star. You know, so when you look at, at that stuff and you go, you know, all of this stuff is happening, you know, Yossi Yindi had, you know, had that incredible impact with treaty. You know, you, you had stuff like where Nelson Mandela's going around the world and talking and thousands of people are showing up. Um, you know, I think, I mean, you look at it now and you go, it's a little depressing that we haven't moved further than we have, but, you know, there was quite a grand groundswell there of people wanting to know what happened and wanting to, you know, make things better. And there were some really significant artists who were, yeah, taking up the cause. And Midnight Oil and Paul, and, you know, you had those Warumpy Band breakthroughs, and Neil Murray. Like, there was a lot of them around, and Neil was on the label as well. So you kind of end up with a bit of a critical mass and I think that helps as well.
1: Eleanor also remembers that while support for Archie was huge in the cities and even extended to the numerous international dignitaries that he encountered early on, there was also a lot of love for both Archie and Charcoal Lane in rural areas and, of course, the many Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities around the nation.
4: I think probably the only other thing is that the international artists, the significance of of Archie to them seemed almost, you know, like bigger than it did in Australia. So when you look at the people that, that he supported, so that would have been, you know, Michael and Gerard sending off, you know, CDs. But the list, when I had a look back through my files and the list of people he supported, you know, and it was... Tracy Chapman and Joan Amatrading and Bob Dylan and, you know, just all sorts of, you know, really big artists. And so he was, you know, and, and they were saying we want him on our show, you know, so, and I remember him going to Canada and doing like Banff and playing with all of these incredible artists. So there was always that big international thing where maybe, you know, Australia might have been a little bit slower (laughs) to pick up, but I I think, you know, he got a lot of attention internationally um, where maybe there's a bit of, I don't know whether it's guilt here that people, I don't know, yeah, let's not not go there with why we're so bad at reconciliation. But, um, you know, when it's not in your backyard, you know, you can maybe embrace it in a way that, People here were a bit more hesitant, um, but a bit like Paul, I don't think he ever got commercial radio airplay. You know, other than you know all of those great guys who used to do the Australian music shows late at night. <laughs> um, and the other one who was really supportive um, was Ed Nimavon at MCM and. Ed used to do those syndicated shows that would go to just radio stations, you know, all across the country. Because that's probably the only other thing worth mentioning is that, you know, Archie did really well in the country. He did really well on country radio. So they, you know, so all of those weird little AM stations that normally you wouldn't kind of bother too much about, Archie did really well with them. You know, and I, I remember, you know, we kind of made a point that back in those days you could sell CDs into the truck stops. You know, so you made sure that you, you put Archie into those sort of places, you know. And even, I remember, because well, I grew up in the country and my uncle, you know, said to me one day, "Ah, oh, you know, I've been listening to that fellow that you worked on. That's a bloody great record, isn't it? You know, and, he, and he bought it in a, you know, in a shell petrol station or something as he was driving out to Broken Hill or whatever. So that was a, a thing with Archie. You know, he did do very well in those kind of areas. So he had that double thing going where he, you know, he had the inner city latte sipping, <laughs> you know, like the, the rope people. And, but he also had this really you know big thing out in the country and obviously then in the community too. You know, it took me a long time to figure out that he actually wasn't related to eight million people, you know, because everybody was like my Uncle Archie. And I'm like, how many, you know, how many nieces and nephews do you have? Um, And then, of course, I worked out that everybody was, he was everybody's uncle.
1: Gerard even believes that the stories and attendant messages woven throughout Charcoal Lane are important enough that they should be introduced to our nation's classrooms.
0: No one tells that story, or no one was telling that story at all. And then to have it presented to you in, in such a succinct fashion in, in this beautiful song with an incredible melody, beautifully performed with Archie's voice front and centre. And it's interesting you, um, you say from, from a political basis, I mean, just lately, of course, you've been reading sort of references to the people in government at the moment carrying on about curriculum, curriculums for schools and all the rest of it and, you know, how, how history, in inverted commas, should be framed. I, I, I certainly couldn't think of a better thing to do than to include Charcoal Lane in any curriculum, in any school, and have, and have a bunch of those songs be studied and pulled apart and stories told and discussed, because it, it really cuts to the chase, all of those songs really explain what was going on with 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 Archie's people. And and maybe that's what they should start considering as opposed to sort of, you know, putting a blanket over the whole damn thing.
1: We'll leave episode three there and finish with the album's title track, Charcoal Lane, one of Archie's elegant rememberings of his drinking days in the streets and alleyways of 80s inner city Melbourne.
2: Side by side, we'd walk along to the end of Gertrude Street, and we'd pop on a mustard for a quart of wine. Thick or thin, right or wrong, in the cold and in the heat, we'd cross over Smith Street to the end. And we'd laugh and sing, do anything to take away the pain. Trying to keep it down as it first went down in Charcoal Lane. Spending young and telling jokes, now the wine is tasting good. Cause it's getting closer and closer To its hands Have a sip And roll some smokes We'd smoke made if we could But we just made do With some city would planned Then we'd all chuck in We'd start to grin When we had enough to do it again But if things got hard Then we had to buy For Charcoal Lane Up Gertrude Street We'd walk once more With just a few cents short And we'd stop at the builder's to see Fight around until we score a flag of our Williams port. Enough to take away our misery. And we don't get drunk, oh, so drunk, and maybe a little insane. And we'd stagger. have a reviver in Charcoal Lane. I'm a survivor of Charcoal Lane.
1: Okay, thanks for checking out episode three of Rewinds. Look back at Charcoal Lion. Thanks, as always, to our network partners Yamaha headphones. We'll catch you all really soon.
0: Rewind with Steve Bell is a euphony podcast produced by Craig Treweek and Andrew Mars. Recorded and engineered by Zig Parker. Theme music by Bar. For more euphony podcasts, visit our website,
5: Spotify, Apple, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts.